0: Our Father, we're thankful again for the gift of salvation that we joy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the preservation of the text of Scripture and for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. We're going to try to um, go through tonight um, until we get to the section which deals with resolving the controversy. I'm going to save that for next week. Uh, we'll finish, and that next week will be it on this, so we can get into the fifth um, part, which is what we wanted to do a month ago. Um, we are on eschatology, and again, I can't remind us enough that what we're really talking about is the completion of God's plan in history. And it's not just peripheral, but the ah mill, pre mill, post mill, whatever your eschatology is... It has to do with this, right here. The separation of good and evil. How historically is that to take place? It's, it's part and parcel of the Christian worldview that there's resolution, moral and ethical resolution to history. Now, if there isn't, then the Christian position falls apart. So that's part and parcel of, of the whole thing. It's just as much part of the Christian message of the gospel of Christ. There's got to be a historic resolution of the good evil problem. And eschatology is the doctrine of future things which fills in how does that take place. The thing to remember as a Christian is that on the pagan basis, the pagan basis, there is no future. Okay? Let me say that again and look at the bottom of that diagram again. On a pagan basis, the basis of unbelief, there is no future in the sense that nothing is resolved. There's no future resolution to history. And the problem is that if you, you'll meet optimistic unbelievers, oh, everything's going to turn out all right well, how do you know that everything is going to turn out all right? If you're this finite person walking around with finite brain and finite thinking, where are you getting this information that says everything's going to come out all right? See, you have to have a total view of history to be able to make such a statement. So people who make that statement outside of the Scriptures, outside of the Bible, are basically subjectivists. It's nothing more than a wish. It's not grounded in any objective fact, and it has no basis. What does a finite mind, how does it ever conclude what the termination of history is all about? So only in the scripture do we even concern ourselves with eschatology. Um, we did make the point earlier that there are apparent eschatologies in paganism, and we name two, two in this century, that have preoccupied millions of people. And billions have been spent in military tools to handle them. One is the eschatology of communism. And the other was the eschatology of the Third Reich. In fact, think about it. Third Reich. What's that mean? The third. The third one in a sequence. And those pagan eschatologies came out of Christianity. It's one of the great ironies of history. In order to get an eschatology... The un- non-Christian has to come to the Christian and borrow it. And this is what Marx did. He borrowed it. And what the, what the Nazis did, they borrowed it. So, the, the, it's a case that we spoke of, I think, back when we were talking about creation, that the non-believer, the mind of the flesh, operates on Christian capital. It's borrowed capital. This is why it's so ironic when I hear educators talk about excluding the Bible from the classroom, like it's some sort of contaminated thing, so radioactive or something. And they are talking about that we're going to educate in in the middle of this so-called neutral zone. The problem with that is, is that logic makes no sense outside of Scripture. Facts can't even be distinguished outside of Scripture. For anyone to think logically, they are borrowing biblical capital and then turning around denying the Bible. If I um, were in a faculty lounge, I would like to find one or two of these people that are the real gung-ho secularists and love to ask them some questions on how, what, where do you get your judgments from, where do you get your eschatologies from, where do you get your logic from? Excuse me, but how does your logic machine work apart from the Scriptures. So, when we come to eschatology, you'll see it borrowed. And ever you see anybody talking about progress in history or is optimistic about history, they're they're borrowing from the Scriptures or they're naive sentimentalists. Now, let's think about four questions, just quiz questions to kind of get back in the throw of things. Concerning the kingdom of God, as it's looked at in the Old Testament. know we've gone through the Old Testament. We've come down to the end of the kingdom of the Old Testament. And it was during those days when God uh, outlined His discipline, His disciplinary nature, and He sent them into exile. This is how the Old Testament ended. And it was talking about this future far-off kingdom. So what we want to do is we want to examine the question of the nature of the kingdom. So the first thing we want to think about tonight, just kind of a quiz, is what was the debate about before Christ concerning the kingdom of God? Just before even the Messiah got involved with the thing, before we even get to the New Testament. Remember, we opened this chapter and said that the controversy began before Jesus. The controversy was over the nature of the kingdom of God. So what was the controversy about? The controversy was basically this. Is this future Kingdom of God something that is something that's going to be part of immortal history in eternity? Or is the Kingdom of God going to have some manifestation in the final age of history, inside mortal history? Now let's define the terms again. What's the difference between immortal history and mortal history. Immortal history is resurrection. Immortal history is characterized in terms of this chart as this period, when good and evil are permanently separated, never to conjoin again. Why is that? Because repentance can't happen to immortals. Think about it for a moment. Can Satan repent? Can Michael the Archangel repent go the other way? See, these, something has happened in the angelic realm to freeze it up. The sides have been chosen and they are not to be changed. It's locked up. Now, when resurrection occurs, that's when this locking up occurs with people. And that's why there's the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto damnation. What is that saying? It's saying no more repentance, no more grace, the former things have passed away and we are now locked as good and evil. So the question then comes, can you have a kingdom of God? Well, we know we can have a kingdom of God here where good is permanently there, never to fall back. The debate before Jesus was, can you have the kingdom of God manifest here? Well, repentance is still possible. Can you have this mix? And what we said was that um, when we came to Jesus, when we came to Christ, what happened? How did he end his career? He rose from the dead. Now we've got an interesting state of affairs. Now we have one human being, member of the human race, who has risen from the dead, and everybody else hasn't. Then we have the situation when in the last hours before he ascended, and the Mount of, of, of Ascension. Um, what did Jesus do? He walked around, talked to people. He ate food with them. He appeared and disappeared in the middle of people's houses. He walked around, had fellowship with people. So now we have a strange thing, never before occurring in human history, where an immortal coexists with a mortal. So on the Emmaus Road, you have a resurrected, immortal human being walking about three feet away from a mortal, fallen human being, not yet resurrected. So we have the coexistence, this strange thing, this coexistence of mortal creatures with immortal creatures. It says, so Christ is beyond in his personal life. He is here. But he also is able to walk here. So, the very fact that the Lord Jesus Christ in the closing hours before the Ascension could coexist and walk around with mortal flesh shows you in a mini version the fact that mortality can coexist, in fact, with immortality. Strange though it may sound. So, we come to the three viewpoints and we define them in terms of that chart. Um, And I'd like to review that again. on page two. And we want to remember, when you look at this chart, that's the way it looks to us now. But um, the ah, the pre, and the post have to do with getting Christ into the picture. But But the argument itself isn't necessarily the return of Christ. It's the nature of this kingdom that's the issue. So we have the premillennial view. Now, Look at the premill, amill, and postmill. Let's review some questions here. What is common to the premill and the postmill view? What is common to both of those positions? Anybody? Triumph, kingdom of God, occurs this side of eternity. So both postmillennialism and premillennialism insist, just like Jesus walked around in resurrection, that you can have a kingdom of God this side of the end of history. The amillennial view says, no, you can't, don't have that. Now, if you look, what is common to both the amill and the postmill? These two views historically have intermixed. The a and the post-mill historically have floated between each other. In fact, a postmillennialist will often tell you that he's nothing more than an optimistic amillennialist, millennialist And sometimes he'll make some derisive remark about the pessimists being the, the amills. is common to both of those? Christ's return is the same thing as the ending of history. The next event... The next climactic event is the end of history. Whereas in the pre mill position, you'll see that Christ's return is separated by at least a thousand years from the end of history. So, looked at another way, which of the three views has the most complicated version of the return of Christ? It's premillennialism. In premillennialism, the return of Christ is stretched out and spread over a number of facts, a number of segments, a number of phases. Okay, so that, that's the views and we want to ask one more quiz question, or two more actually. Which of these three views was the view that was most prevalent down through church history that mostly occupies Roman Catholic circles and occupied the Protestant Reformation by and large, while it was the all position. Okay, which view was always accused in church history of being very Jewish? And which view was it that wanted to be excluded? It was the premillennial view. All right, let's think about some of the extreme forms, the bad, the bad things that maybe spawned came out of these three views. I, I just. Want to show you and review these because these ideas have powerful consequences. They're not just trivial, peripheral trivia questions. Th- these ideas shape how we see ourselves today, it places us into history. So the premillennial view has a catastrophic, revolutionary. Type of idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so utterly different that it's introduced catastrophically. Now, what's a human flesh version of that? Of a crisis and a catastrophe that introduces the perfect state. The idea of a social revolution, French revolution, communist revolution, the idea you have to have, a re- not just a revolution like in America, of a separation of powers or something. But a, a revolution in the French sense, or in the communist sense, was a destruction of all human institutions. Period. The Marxist argued that you couldn't ex- get rid of evil from history unless you had a radical revolution. Why was that? Because he saw that evil was embedded in human institutions. So in trying to f- get thrash away from all this, they decided to scrub... The human institutions. Get rid of marriage. Get rid of family. Get rid of the state. Get rid of all these things. Because evil is part and parcel of them. And we have this vision of the future. What did I say about that now? This is an unbeliever saying. Marx, pagan. What do we immediately know about this guy? He's borrowing the image of the perfect future from us. He's a thief. And this is the intellectual property of the Holy Spirit that's being taken away from the Scriptures and paganized. And so, in order to deal with evil and give people hope, you take, a, take that hope, borrow it from the Scripture, hide it under a new label so people won't really know where you got it from, and then parade it forth as your great new idea. Okay, so this, this is the, the Marxist concept of a, a revolutionary introduction of this future proletariat state, this utopia. So where you have radical views of utopia, those tend to be fleshy, worksy aberrations of premillennialism. Now let's go to the Amill and the post-mill. Both of those attribute the kingdom of God to the church or to Israel. They attribute it to the church. What then does that do to the thinking of the place of the Jew now? Both of these views take something away from the Jew. And they take away the the linear progress from the Jewish nation Israel into this kingdom. The church has now replaced the nation Israel. And it's but a short step then to justify anti-Semitism. So, both amillennialism and postmillennialism have bred historically anti-Semitic cultures. That's why Germany was so anti-Semitic. France, anti-Semitic. One country's Catholic, the other one's half-Catholic, and kind of a bastard version of the the Reformation. So, this is what spawned historically in Europe, anti-Semitism. These ideas have... Consequences. Okay, now what we want to do tonight is go to page 7 and we want to look at some of the features, uh, just review a couple of the features at the bottom of page 7 um, into amillennialism. Remember, ah means no millennium and it basically says that we will have history pretty much like we have it today all the way on down To the return of Christ, who then ushers in eternity. That's the view. Now, one of the features of that view is that it has to take those prophecies of this physical mortal kingdom and do something with them. And what it does to them is it tends to allegorize this physical mortal kingdom. So for example, our insist when one deals with prophetic portions of the Bible, the allegorical method is proper. And they point to passages like Galatians three, twenty-five, Hebrews twelve, twenty-two. Let's turn to Hebrews twelve, twenty-two. This is a good example of how an all would approach Scripture. In Hebrews twelve See, he would say, referring to this verse, don't you see that Israel, that, that Old Testament way of looking at things, that was just a spirit. It's got to be spiritualized. It applies to the church. What does it say here? You've come to Mount Zion. If we come to the physical Mount Zion? He says, no, we, this is just a figure of speech. We come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. See, it's all heavenly. This is all spiritual. So that's their position. That's kind of how they take the passages in the Old Testament. Furthermore, at the bottom page 7, one of their objections, which for quite some time was a very powerful objection, was that you have prophecies about Assyria, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Philistia, and all these nations, and they're extinct. Well, they're, if they're extinct, then obviously how do you interpret the prophecy about them if these are, nations are extinct? The prophecies can't be fulfilled, can they? So that's the position of the Amillennialists in this area. All right, let's go to page 8 now. Last time I I went over the treatment of Revelation 19, midpoint on page 8. We went through J. Adams' commentary on this that it's pictured as an emblem, that Christ coming on the horse is, is a picture of spiritual war here and now. Well, obviously, if if that's here and now and Christ has put Satan away and that's here and now, as I say in the few sentences under uh, Adam's quote, Revelation 19 depicts a spiritual victory Christ wins through His church now. Not in the future, but through His church now. Revelation 20 then portrays the actual second of Advent of Christ. So that would mean that Satan has been bound today. Well, in what sense is Satan bound today? And that's one of the problems of uh, millennialism. How do you define that, that area? The second feature is that the kingdom of God will not triumph over history. They, uh, in Isaiah 65, 17, we, we read that passage. Remember, that's the one with the lion, the wolf, and so on, uh, the wolf and the lamb coexisting. And it speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, just like the book of Revelation. So the new heavens and new earth are eternity. So since that's eternity, it must mean that the kingdom of God doesn't triumph over mortal history now. It only triumphs when there's a new heavens and a new earth. And that's the future state. And 2 Peter 3:13 describes the state after a big catastrophe. So they take a very they say the way to do it is it's a very simple view. This is the eternity begins here. Here's the new heavens and the new earth. Here's Christ's return. It's all part of one thing. You can't break it up into little pieces. It's all together, lumped into one. Now, what we want to do tonight on page 9, the top of page 9, if you go there and turn to Matthew 13 in your Bibles. They say, for evidence of this position, that's what Jesus was doing. In Matthew 13, verse 10. When you study the Gospels in the New Testament, one thing that strikes you, um, if you read these through kind of like one sitting, try to read through a Gospel at one sitting, just try to read it fast to get the big picture. Don't try to get all involved in details. If you do that, to all four Gospels, you'll see that... Halfway through all four Gospels, something happens. Before Jesus is crucified, any of that happens. Jesus starts out His ministry. He preaches to the masses. There is a response. There's controversy. And then, in all four Gospels, Jesus does something interesting. Halfway through His ministry, He begins to kind of talk in a different tone. Halfway through his ministry, he begins to talk about he's going to die. And, it, and it, the, the disciples just, it doesn't click. It's not They're not seeing this. And then he begins to redefine things. And Matthew 13 is one of those places in Matthew 13.10. In he's just got through here in Matthew talking about the soil. And by the way, in Matthew 12, um, going backwards in Matthew 12, he's had a big argument. And he's talking about verse 31, 30, 31. There's the unpardonable sin. Who has he had, just had a confrontation with in Matthew 12? The Pharisees. Have been they welcomed him or have they re, are they rejecting him? They're rejecting him. So at this halfway point through all four Gospels, the leadership of the country of Israel starts to reject the messiah when the leadership of israel begins to reject the messiah we have this halfway response and now in matthew 13 he changes his teaching verse 10 the disciples came to him and said why do you speak to them in parables he answered and said to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been granted for whoever has to him shall more be given And he shall have an abundance. But whosoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see and while hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. And he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. The key is in verse 11. Notice the phrase. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mysteries. Here say the Amel, is where Jesus is really defining what this kingdom of God is all about. It's a mysterious thing. It's an unseen thing. It's something that's purely spiritual and not political and physical. And it was wrong for that nation to assume that when Christ was announced he was Messiah, he was talking about politics. He was talking about an inner transformation of character, say the Amillennialists. And therefore, they say, here's our New Testament precedent for interpreting the Kingdom of Heaven as something merely spiritual and not outward and physical in this mortal age. To be, yes, granted, it will have a physical form, but physical form in immortal eternity, not now. Now, the only version of the Kingdom of God you can have is this mystery form of the Kingdom. So that was, that was where they, they have uh, basically taken their, their lead from. Then on page 9, I list the third thing, that evil will not be reduced before Christ's return. If you'll follow with me there at that point. Since amillennialism agrees with premillennialism against postmillennialism concerning victory over evil during the church age, the major arguments given above won't be repeated here. J. Adams, an amillennialist professor of counseling, uh, has this great quote, The sin and consequent problems among Christians prove that such a society would be far from golden. So that's his argument why we do not have the kingdom of God today. He's an amillennialist. And we're not going to have the kingdom of God today, not inside mortal history. Why is that? What's the feature of a mortal versus a feature of an immortal? Mortal people can do what that immortal people can't repent, change their orientation, switch sides. Immortals can't do that. So while you have a population that can switch sides, you can't have a secure kingdom, say the Amels. Okay. millennialism has one additional problem, however, that premillennialism doesn't have, and that's the binding of Satan. If Revelation 20 refers to the church age and not a future millennium, then in what sense is Satan bound today? Amillennialists reply that the binding is the same kind of binding that's mentioned in Matthew 12, the casting out of demons, that sort of thing, and that is implied in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. They equate... The restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit with Satan. Okay? All right. Now, now we come to postmillennialism. George, do you need me to sign something quick? Oh, okay. All right. Um, postmillennialism. Now we come to another view. That's this view treats this end of history the same. Christ comes, new heavens, new earth, eternity begins. But it does something. It, quote, takes seriously the idea of progress in history and says that things are getting better and better and better until Christ comes back. There is a progress in history. The Gospel has power. To transform not just individuals but society. So now we want to look at this. And as I said last week, postmillennialism is coming in very strong now. It's amazing. Uh, Twenty years ago, postmillennialism was almost, if you studied in theology classes, it was kind of like a museum piece of what people did in the 19th century. Uh, it was very strong in the mid 19th century. The place where postmillennialism flourished was this country. In the, and we're going to see that in a moment. Um, will we see it tonight? I don't know whether we'll see it tonight. Or not. Yes, we will. Um, it, it became extremely prevalent after the Civil War in this country. Post-millennialism did. Um, l- let me introduce it to you. And then I want to take you to two hymns that we sing as Christians. And I want to show you the post-millennialism of those hymns. Jewish history. I will give you some hi- Jewish history and Christian history. What do we say when postmillennialism? Where is Christ located with respect to this kingdom of God in history? Down here. So we have, if if I am here walking around, there's no big event between you. Here, here we are. There's no, no catastrophic event that separates us from walking into the kingdom. See? Whereas in premillennialism, yes, there is. There's the second advent of Christ. Okay, now in, post, in postmillennialism, Jewish history. Here's where it started. In the Sinaitic Covenant, the promised conquest and dominion to Israel, remember? Wasn't it there? Didn't God promise to give the land of Canaan to Israel? And didn't He promise to drive out, what? All or some? All the nations. Could they have had a kingdom in their day? Had they been obedient? Yeah. So, in a sense, at Sinai, it was sort of like an open post-millennialism. It, it didn't get complicated. It's wrong to say that because it didn't get complicated because Christ wasn't involved in the picture. But as far as the kingdom was concerned, they could have walked in and taken it had they been obedient. Let me say that again. Had they been obedient, and that's the key in post-millennialism. You've got to have the obedience necessary to get the kingdom. And that was what was offered to Israel at Sinai. The book of Judges, however, that's a paragraph there on the Jewish history, the book of Judges revealed God's sentence of doom regarding such a kingdom for Israel. Remember that? Judges 2. He said, what did he say? I'm going to stop. I'm not going to drive him out anymore. You people haven't got the word. You won't obey me. You won't make me your king. You won't mess around and get your own king. Fine. Let him go conquer it. But I'm not going to do it for you. In the following monarchical period of Jewish history, as we saw in the previous chapters of part 4, not only did the people fail to be faithful, but their leaders and kings also failed to be faithful. See, this this is why I say understand the Old Testament and it will straighten out things in the New. What was the lesson we learned about the kingdom in the Old Testament? It couldn't come because of two things. The failure of the people, judges, and during the conquest, and the failure of the kings and the leaders, Samuel and kings. So the question is, if you're going to get the kingdom today, what have you got going today that you didn't have back then? Christian history. In Christian circles, the idea of the kingdom coming in history prior to Jesus' return was mingled with Amalism, with Augustine. Let's get church history down. We're going to have some lessons in church history today. Uh, A little bit, anyway. I'm not an expert in church history, by by the way. Um, Augustine. Let's view church history as sort of broken up into 500-year segments. 500, 1,000, 1,500. Reformation right here. Okay, here's the period. Augustine. Without doubt, this man was the most powerful intellect of the Christian church in the first, first half of church history. No one comes close to Augustine. It's sad, but no one today reads this guy's books. Two classic books Augustine wrote that every Christian somewhere, to be a well-read Christian, you should read. One is his Confessions. The other one is his book called The City of God. His Confessions is an autobiography of how he came to know Jesus Christ. Augustine was a party guy. He went off, raised hell in Rome, left his mother, his mother was very, very upset, Did not she prayed for years for this guy, this guy was a renegade son, prodigal son, went to Rome, was involved in fornication, drinking, alcohol, the whole nine yards. And then one day he was at a party and he saw a little scrit of paper blow across his foot. And he heard a voice say, take and read. You know what the scrit of paper was? Part of the Epistle of Romans. And it's an amazing story. So Augustine's Confession read how the Holy Spirit brought to himself one of the druggies, potheads of the time before he fried his brains and could think, and redeemed that man's life, changed him into a a great towering intellect of the Christian church. But like all men, he was a part of his time. And we're not ever sanctified enough to separate completely from the time in which we live. And Augustine brought in Neoplatonism into the church. And the reason for that was, back here, prior to Jesus' day, there was a Greek philosopher named Plato. Plato was probably the greatest philosopher ever lived. That's why John uh, Whitehead, um, in, his, in, his, in his writings at the beginning of the century, said that Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato, because all the issues he defined. Plato said you can't have truth unless you have absolutes of some sort. He didn't know where to put the absolutes. He couldn't find a location for the absolutes. But he recognized that if you're going to float, you have lost truth and morality. So, Plato was a very attractive person to borrow ideas from. And so, here's Augustine out here with a lot of the other church fathers fighting paganism. And they went back in time to pick up ideas out of Plato to use to attack the unbelief of their society. The P- problem was, when they went back to Plato, instead of critiquing Plato and running him through him through a spirit, spiritual grid, the Scripture, they sort of borrowed him wholesale and took everything of Plato. And one of the things is like a Trojan horse they brought inside the Christian church was the idea that matter is kind of loose and, and, and um, not really true, it's sort of a uh, source of sin, that sort of thing. Uh, here's an example of Plato's reasoning. Um, if you have a paper and pencil, and you want to draw a triangle. Can you ever draw a perfect one? You take a ruler and a protractor, compass. Can you draw a perfect triangle? The answer is no, you can't, because a lead, pencil lead will screw up, and if you look at it, you know, it'll never be a perfect triangle. Well, then Plato is asking the question, Then where do we get the idea of a triangle from? We're not getting it from the paper and pencil. It comes from here. So there is an idea up here of a perfect triangle, but you never can find one. So this was one of the big ideas, that that the real true truth is somehow in this intellectual world, but it's not down in this world, because this world doesn't have real triangles, real circles. But you have the idea of it. The idea is there. You know what you're looking for. You just never can get to it. So that was the idea applied to the kingdom. Now think about what Augustine did here. If you can't find real good triangles in the world, and you can't find perfect circles in the world, you can't find perfect righteousness in the world either. So it's an idea in our heads, but you never can get to it in this history. So the kingdom of God has got to be something else than the present history. So that predisposed things. However, Augustine was also biblical enough to have borrowed another idea from the bible along with plato see what's going on here an idea from here an idea from here and they wove them together what did the idea that they borrowed from the scripture was the idea of progress so you have a progress progress toward the kingdom so he had kind of a postmillennialism it was a, he was an optimistic amill now if you on page 10 postmillennialism begins more serious And for the rest of the class, we're going to go through postmodernism as it has come to us now. The first real postmodern statement in the modern sense of the word was made in the 12th century by a Roman Catholic. Now, here's a little historical tidbit. The Roman Catholicism had a problem with the Protestants. Here's 1500. What do you think the Protestant Reformers were doing with the Book of Revelation and the Pope. In the Book of Revelation, there's something called the Whore, who sits on seven hills. Now, how do you think the Reformers took that? That was the Roman Catholic Church. Babylon, in the Book of Revelation, is the Roman Catholic Church, the Whore. And so the Protestant reformers made the identification between Babylon and the the Catholic Church equals the Roman Catholic Church. What happens to the Roman Catholic Church if you take this identification in the book of Revelation? It gets crushed and smashed. Now, obviously, that's... So, the, to what happened after the Protestant Reformation was what do we call the movement against the Protestants by the Catholics? The Counter Reformation. And in the days of the Counter Reformation, Catholic scholars were trying to figure a way they could blunt that identification. And they devised the scheme postmillennialism. Because in postmillennialism, they could take a lot of those judgmental passages. And move them back in time to get them out of the way and then have progress to the kingdom. We'll see how that has come about in a moment. However, it's true that some godly men have been postmillennialists. For example, I list you some. Jonathan Edwards was a postmillennialist. President one of Time magazine once called Jonathan Edwards one of the greatest intellects the United States of America has ever produced. A guy that used to sit around, read his sermons, and mumble. And became president of Princeton. And he was so formidable that no unbelieving faculty member dared take him on. That's how powerful this guy was. Quiet guy, never yelled apparently, just kind of read his sermons like this. And his famous sermon, centers in the Hands of Angry God, he even read that thing four or five times and people fell asleep. And then one day he read it and the church fell apart. And that was the revival that started in New England. So a very interesting character. If you ever get a chance to read neat biography, you know, these are some guys that are really fantastic people. Post in America later on were B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen, and R. J. Rushdoony, who was one of the re- Christian Reconstructionists. Very good scholar. I have known him personally. Um, has done a lot to in the Christian school movement. Uh, He has written a book that is a classic in its field. If you are a teacher, you ought to at least be aware of this book. It's called The Messianic Character of American Education, one of the finest biblical critiques of educational theory ever written. The Messianic Character of American Education. And he goes through and he takes every single one of the theoreticians in the 20th century that have addressed the issue of education and shows their pagan leanings and why they are having a counterfeit messianic kingdom. However, he's an ardent postmillennialist. Writing in the 1970s, this is 20 years ago, here's what he wrote Postmillennialism once turned this country around. First, it established it with the Puritans. That's not really true. So the Puritans were a mixture, there were some pre mills. Uh, by the way, one of the pre mill Puritans was the guy that caused the revolution in England. In fact, the Puritans in England were sometimes called the Fifth Monarchy Movement. Now, think of why they were called the Fifth Monarchy Movement. What's the Fifth Monarchy? What are the four monarchies in Daniel? See? Kids learn this in history. I mean, the ones that still study history. Um, They study the Fifth Monarchy Movement. And nobody in the books, textbooks, I learned that, nobody told me what the Fifth Monarchy Movement was about. They just said, memorize it. Going to get a quiz on Monday. Oh, all right. Memorized it quiz on money and forgot it on Tuesday. But nobody bothered to tell me what the fifth monarchy was all about. The fifth monarchy is taken from the book of Daniel. These guys aren't stupid. The Puritans were well-read Englishmen who knew their Bibles. And when they said they are the fifth monarchy movement, they meant they are preparing for that fifth monarchy. So that's what what he's talking about here. post turned the country around, first it established with the Puritans, then with the new Puritans, Bellamy and Hopkins, two Puritan leaders, very responsible for the War of Independence. And their followers. it turned out, they turned the country around again and we gained our freedom. William Johnson said of Bellamy and Hopkins, merely a handful and merely religious. And yet in about three decades, they had conquered the churches and the government positions in the colonies. Three decades will take us to the end of the century into a different society. Why? Because we are the ones with no blocked future. Of course, we are at the end of the thing. We don't see any redeemed society. And that's always the problem. Postmillennialism never verifies. But do notice the comment, and you might want to circle the word, because this is their accusation against premillennialism, that we have a blocked future because we are pessimists. We are sitting around waiting for the second advent. And that's what they see harmful about us, that we are not aggressive enough. We are not dynamic enough we do not claim enough for the Lord. However, just as premillennialism has radicals, so postmillennialism has radicals. Now, please notice this paragraph because I want to fill you in on a church history a little bit here. We're now coming through the eighteen hundreds to the nineteen hundreds in this country. And we're right about there, year two thousand. Here's a civil war. Now, something happened in this country, right about this zone, right in here. Starting about 1850 and running through 1930, a tremendous revolution in this country occurred. Higher criticism swept every pulpit in America. Unbelief crept into the pulpits. And it was all this higher... of the picture of goodness that the Scripture gives us. Now, herein is a miracle. It was written by men. We can't stand its authority, but we just love the social results of its message. So, what what happened here was, during the 19th century, social reform movements such as freeing the slaves and welfare for the urban, this is where missions, inner-city missions began, began, Impover- led to what became known as the social gospel. While much of the impetus for these reforms came from evangelical Christians, notice this and underline it, the impetus came from evangelical Christians. Why? What did I say about borrowed capital today? See? The impetus came out of the Scriptures originally. Soon, unbelieving and liberal elements took them over. Took over the social works. Having capitulated to pagan unbelief, higher criticism of the Bible, and the overthrow of Christian Orthodoxy, the new social gospel leaders still realize that it was the evangelical Orthodox people who did what? Donated money. Follow the money. It'll always lead you home. And it's no different in theology. Here's the problem these guys had. They didn't believe the Bible, but the people who gave money did believe the Bible. So now what are they going to do? Get in the pulpit and use the good-sounding words and don't mean a thing behind it. The rise of the biggest rip-off the church has ever seen. Liberalism came in and you had men talking about God and how sweet it was to help the poor and all the rest of it. And they didn't have a clue about the Gospel, didn't care about Christ, didn't care or accept the authority of the Scriptures. But, I mean, after all, who pays their salary? I mean, what am I going to do if I tell these people I don't believe? I'm going to get fired. So we don't tell the congregation. We don't believe the scriptures, I mean, we can't be that honest, I mean, you know, after all my salary's at stake so we're going to preach this thing that sounds somewhat like the gospel so we can keep our programs going because these people will still give us the money okay okay now, next paragraph, see what happened they saw that a post-millennial viewpoint had to be kept alive. Because remember, some of these evangelicals were post-males at this point. That's what gave them impetus. And to do that, you've got a hymn book here. Um, let me show you a good example of it. Turn in your hymn book to two famous hymns, Both written um, ages ago. Um, One is Hymn 125, which we'll be singing in Christmas, by Isaac Watts. Now, Isaac Watts is a strange guy. Sometimes he sounds like a pre-mill, and other times he sounds like a post-mill. He he flips from different songs to different songs. Um, He was eschatologically unstable. Um, Let's look at Joy to the World. Notice the third stanza. Uh, well, second, joy, look at joy to the earth the Savior reigns. Now, of course, see, the, the kingdom is here. The savior's reigning. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. The earth, in other words, is reverberating to the presence of the King. See, this is the picture from Isaiah. But the premillennials would say the earth reverberates to the presence of the King during the millennium. Not now. Third stanza. Let no more sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Now, when did thorns come in? With a curse. Has the curse been repealed? But this is what the song says. Because the vision of the song is the kingdom of God. So, nor thorns infest the ground, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Is He eventually going to do that? Absolutely. 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 The question is, in which stage of the progress are we? All right, another one. Um, turn to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Hey, uh, it's Hymn number 569. Now, this was done during the, the Civil War. Julia Ward Howe. Mrs. Howe was a postmillennialist as you can tell by the way she set up these lyrics. She's looking at the union forces here. What social movement are we immediately involved with? The freeing of the slaves. See? Social. We're not knocking the social gospel. I just want to see how the social effects of these reformers were driven by a post-millennialism. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Where is she seeing that? Because he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. you know where she's getting that quote from? It's the book of Revelation. It's the story of the second advent of Jesus Christ. But Julia Ward Howe says she's seeing it in the campfires of the Union Army in the middle of the Civil War. He's trampling out the vintage and the grapes of wrath. I mean, it's not bad that she sees there's there's, uh, progress here. I'm not knocking that. I'm just trying to show you, though, the connection between post-millennialism and social reform. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Um, Notice in 4, in the beauty of the lilies, that's true. Christ was born across the sea with the glory in his bosom. That's perfectly valid theology. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. Perfectly fine, while God is marching on. But it's the concept that the kingdom is coming. So now if you look on page 10, my remark, they saw a post-millennial viewpoint had to be kept alive. Why did you have to keep a post-millennial view alive? Because it created hope that you could walk now unhindered, no-block future into this kingdom. The threat to the social gospel, now look at this. Now here's a point of church history. Here's the social gospel, and about 1870, something begins to happen in this country. 1870. Five years after the Civil War. The threat to the social gospel, they realized, was the growing premillennialism in the churches at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, of course, it had started back in 1870. That date comes from the other note I showed you the other few nights ago. Remember when we were talking about West got up in the Prophecy Conference? Remember I made the comment about all denominations? It wasn't just some Bible group in a storefront. I mean, this was the main denominations in 1878, had premillennialist scholars in it. A, gro- a leading scholar for the liberal social reform was Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a nice liberal Baptist who blamed premillennialism as a, quote, obstruction to social reform. University of Chicago professor Shirley Jackson Case wrote, postmillennialist. Do not look for early relief through the sudden coming of Christ. On the contrary, they expect a gradual and increasing success of Christianity in the present world until ideal conditions are finally realized. Then we'll follow the millennium. Now, you can sit here and laugh at that, but that's what these people were saying in the 19th century. What horrible experiences separate them from us in history? World War I. World War II. The atom bomb. We're not so optimistic. They were. This was their world. Alarmed, and look at this quote, alarmed at the effect the premillennial Schofield Bible was having. Schofield was a lawyer, became a Christian, and began to teach the Word of God and put out the Schofield Bible. Some people knock. But the point was, the Schofield Bible was published right about here, 1911, somewhere in there. And what it did was this. In the pulpits, you had these guys with their doctorates from Germany, yak-yacking Christian vocabulary, with a nice liberal theology. Well, people kind of felt something was going on. It was wrong. What did Schofield do that gave a weapon to the congregation? He gave them a study Bible. Now what? The mud hit the fan. Because now the Sunday school teachers are preparing lessons out of the Schofield Bible. Uh-oh. And the Schofield Bible is premillennial, millennial And the Schofield Bible is talking about literal return of Jesus Christ. And all these Sunday school teachers are, are coming with all this Bible verse stuff. I mean, these guys really knew their stuff. So now the liberals are outgunned because their educational system has been caught off guard by the introduction of all these study Bibles. And so here's this poor guy up trying to defend his salary to thousands of people out in the congregation that reading their Bibles now that are listening carefully when he says, I'm not sure whether Jesus is God the Son or not. I mean, all of a sudden, lights are going on in the congregation. All of a sudden, there's a little issue involved here. Excuse me, what are you doing here teaching? This sounds like apostasy to me. So, here's what McGowan... Mago- look, at, look at the complaint this guy makes. Actual quote from his writings. The nerve... Of active Christian endeavor. Remember the Christian Endeavor. Those of you who are older, Christian Endeavor Society, that kind of thing. This is a word that was used in the around 1900s, 1920s, 1930s. The nerve of active Christian endeavor is in danger of being slowly paralyzed by what? The Schofield Bible. That's what. Why is that? Because it taught premillennialism. Remember what I said? What does premillennialism say? Can you get to the kingdom? Straight line? No. And it requires an intervention catastrophically by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that impacts. So, here's the future features of postmillennialism. We'll only cover one. We'll run over a few minutes tonight. Postmillennialism agrees with amillennialism that Christ's return ends history. Now, on page 11. Postmillens are best known for their insistence that evil will be conquered before Christ returns based upon the available grace from the first advent. The kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals that the world eventually is to be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace. They were active in church missionary work, by the way. They did not dominate church missions, however. That's what they'd like you to believe. Pre-mills were the missionaries. To post-millennialists, the great commission of Matthew 28. What's that? Everybody know that? To preach the gospel to all the nations, make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that that command is not a command merely to preach the gospel, but to conquer world culture for Christ. Bentner cites another postman to reduce this great commission to the premillenarian program of preaching the gospel as a witness to a world that is to grow worse and worse until it plunges its doom into destruction is to emasculate the gospel of Christ and wither it into pitiful impotency. The confident attitude in the power of Christ's kingdom the power of the gospel, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, and the progress of the Great Commission sets postmillennialism apart from the essential pessimism of all millennialism and premillennialism. See what these guys are saying? Learn to hear what they're saying. No, it doesn't have to say we, we 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 agree with it, but you've got to at least understand what where they're coming from. And we'll close with this paragraph here, this one that I'm reading, because I, I just want to get you into the uh, into their heads. Um, well, let me, let me summarize this. Um, in the middle of page 11, quote 33, if you look there for a moment, here would be a typical Rush Dooney quote. Consider the difference it would make in, to the United States if instead of 40 million or so pre-millennials, we had 40 million postmillennials. Instead of having 40 million people who expect the world is going to end very soon and they're going to be raptured out of tribulation, consider the difference it would make if these 40 million people instead felt that they had their duty under God to conquer in Christ's name. See, he's he's right about something here. Okay? We have to, as pre-mills, think about what's our position via the society. Because we operate in a different system than the post-mill. Now now the question is, and we, we want to conclude with this, they have a problem with what do you suppose in Scripture. If they're holding to the fact that the world's going to get better and better, what do you suppose are the problem passages for them? What about Christ that says that broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the one, remember? So, there's these pessimistic things in the Scriptures. There's talking about in the last days people will fall away. What do you do with these? You've seen them. dozens of passages in the New Testament talk about this falling away business. Well, here's what they do. Watch carefully. In recent years, to explain the theme of pessimism in the New Testament, Post Mills have revived and developed a preterist scheme of interpretation. The preterist interpretation places the pessimist and judgmental passages in the apostolic era instead of the future. So what what they do is they uh, take the the pessimistic passages as here's Christ's resurrection, here's the 70 years until the destruction of the temple, and then, of course, the church goes on. They say that all those pessimistic passages have to do with this era. And it's a story of the judgments on Israel. That's what the pessimism is all about. They rejected Messiah, so they're going to get clobbered. Um... Again, notice notice on on page 11, the bottom, the source of it, Roman Catholicism. To neutralize Protestant claims, the Roman Catholic Church was the Babylonian horror revelation and would come to future damnation. Later, unbelieving German higher critics used the preterist approach because that way you could deny predictive prophecy. See, it was just written after the fact. Now, finally, page 12. We conclude with quote 36. One of the most influential recent postmillennial commentaries was written by David Chilton. Listen to what he writes. It's commentary in the Book of Revelation. Here's what they got to do. Book of Revelation. Very pessimistic. The Book of Revelation is not about the second coming of Christ. It is about the destruction of Israel and Christ's victory over his enemies in the establishment of the new covenant temple. God sent the Edomites and Roman armies to destroy utterly the last remaining symbol of the old covenant, the temple and the holy city. This fact alone is sufficient to establish the writing of the Revelation as taking place before A.D. 70. It foretells events that St. John expected his readers to see very soon. The last days is a biblical expression for the period between Christ's advent and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the last days of Israel. Now, that's what they've got to do in order to deal with the pessimistic passages. I mean, think about it. What are you going to do? If you're post-mill, you've got to do something with those passages. So, the way of dealing with it is this. Now, what did I say about and post-millism? They take the kingdom away from Israel and give it to the church. And what happens? It sets off a structural form of anti-Semitism, doesn't it? Now, look what happens. Now, we've got to deal with the pessimistic passages. So, think of all those judgment passages in the book of Revelation. The wrath of God poured out upon the earth. No, it's not poured out on the earth. Who's it poured out on in this field? Israel. See what's happening here? The wrath of God is poured out against his own people. The nation, physical nation of Israel. So, that's the structure. Now, next week we're going to deal with well, how do we resolve? We've presented the three views. How, what's the form of logic? What's the reasoning that we arrive at the position we do? And I'm going to give a defense of premillennialism. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. We thank you that in Christ we do have an eschatology. We do have a hope. A hope that stands outside of our own subjective opinions. That we don't have to just be uh, optimistic idealists. But we have the authoritative word of Scripture that you work all things after the counsel of your will, and surely will bring to pass those things which you have promised us. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Sir, sure. <clears throat> if there are any questions to answer, <laughs> if I have any answers to que- the questions, yes. I It seems to me like the first one. Here, it seems to me like the current Christian fundamentalist movement, or whatever that they've been having, seems to have some uh, uh, postcolonial sense in it. And although I haven't heard anyone talk about, you know, talk about their in times views and this, or I haven't studied that part of it. But you know, it seems to me that there's an element or a similarity between the way it was. Earlier. And then the second question would be plugging in the other debate that seems to be maybe more among the uh, premillenians, which would be the, the point of time of Christ's uh, rapture of the church and the pre, post, and mid, and how that fits in these discussions. Um, Wade has just asked um, the nature of the universe <laughs> uh, <laughs> type question. Um, one of them, uh, I think some of you have already indicated to me, uh, as we've gone through this, some, some thoughts are beginning to gel about what's going on around us right now. And let me just introduce this by saying, I want to answer his first question, which was basically, is there an inherent post-millennialism going on around us right now in, in certain Christian movements? Um, and let me preface it by saying this. Ideas... Have, tr- have tremendous potency when they're not brought out into the open and discussed. And where you have pulpits who are not teaching eschatology and not teaching these doctrinal areas, you have people unconsciously choosing positions and not realizing what it is they're choosing because it never comes directly to their attention. It's just kind of a group movement or the, the peer pressure is just to go in this direction. And nobody stands back and says, not necessarily that's wrong, it's just that before you, you walk, you need to walk by faith, and you can't walk by faith if we don't have truth, because what is faith? Faith is born by the Word of God. So what we can tend to do is sometimes, even in our own godly Christian circles, we operate a lot by peer pressure, rather than by personal conviction on the basis of Scripture. Now, what we've talked about in the pre-, post-, and amil ah, folks is not something new. I hope I've shown you that this goes goes on for centuries. These are not new discussions. They are always present. They have always been present. You can go through the hymn book and see the different ideas all in the hymn books that we we use. All evangelicals. One of the wisest things that you can do is besides studying the Bible is to study a little of church history. Because church history gives you an experimental regime where you can test what ideas lead to and see what happens. What happened? We're going to see this, by the way, coming up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Our first uh, lesson, the first event, is going to be the birth of Christ aptly around Christmas time. We're going to do this. And you're going to see that every major heresy was tested in the 400 years between Christ's birth and the Chalcedon Creed. Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, the whole nine years, all of those ideas were discussed centuries ago. There's no need to discuss them anymore. They are thrown out as garbage. And uh, people that trot around today with their little tracks are, are just p- poor people that are historically illiterate because all those ideas were tested. But in the area of eschatology, the church... Wa- here's the balance. We want to know that we have victory in Christ. We want to know that there is a solution to evil and that Christ shall triumph over it. So if we're premillennialists, we have to be on our guard that we don't let the futureness of the kingdom of God make us complacent into thinking that there aren't positive, victorious areas to claim right here and now. Okay? That's one of the things we have to guard against as premillennialists. It's too easy to slip, oh, we just got to hold on until Jesus comes, kind of thing. And that's not an application of premillennialism. And when we get into it, Wade's second question was about the debate inside the premillennial circles about, ah, you know, the, the pre the trib, post trib, and those things. We're not going to get into those now because that has to do with the church uh, after Christ. But here's something to think about. In theology, there are what I call points of stability and points of slippery slopes. Okay, um, Glenn flies his airplane, and he knows that the airplane aerodynamically has certain, um, a certain plane view, certain angles that it flies at, it is stable. And it has certain other uh, angles that it flies at, planes, that are not stable. Um, so, so there are certain positions that you naturally fall into one way or the other. Um, and in eschatology, there are two basic stability points and you can show this. Um, the other positions, somebody gets into one of these positions and they tend to veer back to this position. And if they're over here, they might tend to veer finally over to this position. The two positions are amillennialism of some brand, which in terms of the tribulation would be post trib, amillennialism, post trib, Christ comes after the tribulation, or pre trib, premillennialism. Because in pre trib, premillennialism, the rapture is, is another complexity that's introduced into this whole scheme. But what it does, it maintains an optimism. It's a corrective inside premillennialism. If premillennialism isn't pre-trib, then you never know whether you're going into the tribulation or not. But if you're a pre-trib premillennialist, you know that as long as the rapture hasn't occurred, there's room for victory. So it tends to act as a corrective, a balanced thing. And historically, you'll see this. You'll see people kind of drifting around in their view of the tribulation. They'll, they won't stay in the middle. <laughs> yeah, they usually don't. What usually happens is they either go post or they go pre. And then if they go pre, they'll always be pre-millennial because you can't be either. And if they go post, they'll tend to more and more downplay the millennium and become an millennials So those are those two... Stability points. and Not that people can't hold other positions, but it tends to be that way if you watch the history of the discussions. Now, what we see today around us is a tendency for those who have a charismatic type background to join hands with people you would never dream they would join hands with. I'm thinking here of the intellectuals in the Reconstructionist movement, like Rush These guys are are very much intellectuals. They're not so much in the sciences. They're in the arts and history, economics. Um, Gary Gary North writes a newsletter for investors. Um, Very much a a Reconstructionist. Um, And you wonder, wait a minute. How come these groups tend to be amalgamating now, we seem to see? And the answer is because they fundamentally move in a direction that is very compatible with each other. Think about that quote we just went through. What does a postmodernist say about the gospel? It is a potent gospel. It is a world-conquering gospel. It is so powerful under the power of the Holy Spirit that it shall redeem society. So the urge to bring in the kingdom is present in both of those communities. And that's why you tend to see them uh, cooperating and so on. Unintentionally, I mean, I don't think they sit down and do this. It's just that it just happens because they're both operating in the same frequencies. And they tend to find themselves as co-workers. Um, You see it sometimes in healing ministries. For example, it will often be said that healing is in the atonement, and therefore we can have uh, this miraculous healing ministry and everybody can, can be healed. What happens, unfortunately, in those kinds of cases is that you'll have people that aren't healed and who now feel, now they've got two problems. They have their original illness that they started with, and now they have psychological guilt because they didn't get healed from the first origin. Now they come walking around thinking they don't have enough faith. Well, God can, can God heal? Of course God can heal. The question, however, is whether this healing that's in the atonement is to be applied all of it now or is the healing in the atonement to be applied in stages? Some now, all of it later with the resurrection of the body. So there's that factor. So you can begin to see what we're talking about here sounds at first glance like it's some abstract category that we've created. But I want to show you that it's very, very practical. And when you and we're always surrounded with that. And as, if we are literalists, we believe the Scriptures, we believe that it takes Christ to bring in the kingdom, then here, for example, is how I approach it. I've struggled with this for many years. Uh, I've worked with people in both political parties. Uh, at one point, um, we had a little ministry where <laughs> in one town almost every precinct leader in both parties uh, was a biblical Christian. And it stunned the party leadership in both parties. I mean, I think both the Republicans and Democrats got together in an emergency meeting because uh, all their precincts were falling to this right-wing conspiracy. Uh, This is one time the Democrats and Republicans both were talking to one another. So concerned were they that both of their parties were getting infiltrated. What do you do now? Um, And... What I've personally concluded is that if you stay with a pre-trib, pre-millennial position, you preserve optimism in this sense that that Satan can never totally dominate world society. He has not been given that option. In the tribulation, yes, he takes over, but we aren't in the tribulation, and therefore, we don't have to act like we're in the tribulation. There is room left to move. God hasn't declared war. He hasn't recalled his ambassadors. This isn't the tribulation yet. But on the other hand, because we have this literalist view of the kingdom, what do we know must take place in order to have a perfect society? To have a perfect society requires more than just born-again Christians, doesn't it? If the kingdom picture of the Old Testament is true, having a 100% regenerate population is not going to bring in the kingdom. Something else is needed. What else is needed? A redeeming of the environment. I mean, the ecology movement, at least, has made us aware of the environment. Who redeems the environment at the end of the tribulation to introduce the kingdom? Jesus Christ. There is a a cleansing of the environment. And I don't mean just a physical cleansing. What else happens? The principalities and powers of darkness are suspended. Their authority is removed for a thousand years. So because of that, we have a boundary now. Now we've established a function. If you can plot evil as an assumption, you have a minimum level of evil that will always be there in the church age. That minimum level is the presence of Satan. He walks the face of this earth, what does Peter say? As a roaring lion seeking who may devour. It doesn't sound like he's on a leash. He's walking around seeking whom he may devour. So there's always a minimum power to evil. But on the other hand, there is a maximum power uh, that restrains him, and that is he does not have full reign. That gives us a zone to operate in and where the church is vigorous and evangelistic and wins people to Christ and grows them in the Word, historically, what do we observe? A better society. But what happens the moment the evangelism goes out the drain and the Word of God is rejected? It goes right back to where it was. Now, if post-millennialism is true, shouldn't it at least be demonstrable sometime in church history that where Christianity was vigorous, such as North Africa prior to 400 A.D., such as New England, between 1600 and 1800. For 200 years, Christianity dominated New England life to the point where it's ridiculed in textbooks. Now, what happened? New England isn't Christian today. I'll tell you that right now. Is North Africa Christian? North Africa sank. It's like the Lord in the book of Revelation said, I'll take your candlestick away from you. And he took the candlestick out of North Africa, and it's never been the same since. Took the candlestick out of New England, never been the same since. So where Christianity has flourished, and then the population has turned against it, God turns out the lights, and you can send missionaries into these areas from from you know until you're bankrupt, and nothing seems to happen. The place is just spiritually dead. It's almost like you have to flush the whole population out. and and bring in new people or something. I mean, you go to New England, and I I know New England pretty well. My parents both come from New England, and I was led to the Lord in New England, and I know Christians there for many years in New England, and I, I speak out of that knowledge. And I can tell you, the only vibrant churches in New England today are churches that have congregations of transplants. They're people that moved in because of the chip industry, the engineering industry, or something, and they, they're transplants from some other area. Now, those churches in New England are flourishing. The churches that are made up of the people that have been there since Aunt Tilda was born. Uh, they, those churches are the deadest things you ever saw. Terrible. Awful. Full of legalism. If they have any kind of scriptures, all this legalism. And if, if they don't have that, then they're off to the Unitarian liberalism. But it's a mess. So postmillennialism doesn't demonstrate that it works in history. Yes, Debbie? Yeah, I I, I think they probably would, Debbie, because the point is that we can look back in the 19th century and ask ourselves, what happened then? You had post-millennials who were conservatives. They started a lot of the social reform movements. Um, I can't speak with authority over specific social reform movements because I'm not intimate to the biographies of the people, but I almost bet you that a lot of the movements that we can identify today that came out of that uh, came out of a post-millennial background. And in each of those cases, these this movement, the social gospel movement, was captured by the liberals. Because you see, liberalism doesn't have a gospel. It's not. It doesn't have anything that people aren't saved. There's no answer to the fundamental questions of life. So because they've destroyed the gospel they've got to replace it with something and what do you do with people who don't press their guilt all the way to the throne of God and see the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin what's the natural thing that the flesh always does to substitute for the blood of Christ works now do you see the connection activity in quote good causes becomes a work and where the gospel goes down, originally the, the post-mill, they were preaching the gospel in the missions. The, the Feeding the poor, freeing the slaves. People did it because these people were made in God's image and should be handled as people and made in God's image. And so you respected the individual because of your biblical view that these slaves, these poor people, they too are made in God's image and they too, Christ has died for them and so forth and so forth. But when the gospel then goes away and the word of God is turned around, now what we have left is just this outer crust of activities. So we have all the good works, we have the welfare reform, we have the prohibition movements, we have these kinds of things that go on because, and, and propelled by this need to make myself feel good. So the social gospel finally winds up attracting people to itself with a view that th- that we can make it better. But it's we who the ones that are making it better. See, that there's a shift there. The victory now comes because of us, not because of Christ. And then... The liberalism comes in a little bit more and then you get this attitude, well, we don't want to talk about the gospel in quite such vivid terms. Let's just talk about giving out food for the hungry and let's do this and let's do that. And then, 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 then in quiet moments of privacy, we can talk about the gospel. We don't want to fly that gospel flag too too publicly. And see what's happening? And it just finally, it turns out that nobody mentions the gospel. It's just good works. So that's the sequence of events, and yes, postmodernism, I think, you can say, sets people up for that. Uh, our time is up, but we'll uh, get into this more next time.